feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. In 1964, an obscure high school teacher in Mount Vernon, New York, named Henry Littlefield, We must be over the rainbow! stirred up things in a magazine called American Quarterly, in which he said The Wizard of Oz was a parable on populism. Critics have chided this thesis as an ingenious act of imaginative scholarship. Some have been giving it serious credence. No, I, I know we're not in Kansas. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Take, for instance, Auntie M and Uncle Henry's sad little Kansas farm. It was battered by the times like so many real Kansas homesteads back then, and the populist movement found many followers among struggling Sunflower State farmers around the time The Wizard of Oz was written. Littlefield suggests that the tornado represented the movement's storming of the state, and the Wicked Witch of the East, painted green, symbolized East Coast financiers, and the munchkins were the little people that were enslaved by them. You have to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. You kind he is a wizard, a wizard, if ever a wizard there was. If ever, oh, ever a wizard there was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because. The yellow brick road and Dorothy's slippers, which were silver in the book, referenced the era's debates over the gold standard and the use of the silver coin. The brainless scarecrow, the Midwest farmers, the tin man, the nation's East Coast labor workers, the industrialists who have lost their heart, and the cowardly lion, lion, rhymed with Brian of William Jennings Bryan fame, the popular presidential candidate in 1896, who was scared to make a full move for the White House. And lastly, we have Toto. Well, Toto fit into Littlefield's narrative by playing on the word teetotaler, because prohibitionists at the time were political allies of the populist advocating for no liquor. Welcome to Print the Legend. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and this is an AP U.S. History podcast for students who have an interest in examining the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Welcome to part two of our series, Closing the Frontier, where today we will examine the life of the American farmer rising up through the political ranks in the age of populism. And part three will conclude our series with Western settlers and continued clashes with Native Americans. organization was inevitable. Like the oppressed laboring class of the East, it was only a matter of time before Western farmers would attempt to use their numbers to effect positive change. In 1867, the first such national organization was formed. It was known as the Patrons of Husbandry, later known to be the Grange. The 
local Grange-sponsored dances and gatherings to attack the doldrums of daily life among the grass fields, and it was only natural that politics and economics were discussed in these settings. Soon, the Grangers realized their individual problems were common. Their chief villain? The railroads. Grangers lobbied state legislatures for the regulation of the railroad industry, and by 1874, several states passed Granger laws, which established maximum shipping rates. Grangers also pooled their resources to buy grain elevators so their members could enjoy a break on grain storage. Grangers later became Farmers Alliances, a huge nationwide organization where in 1889, Northern and Southern farmers championed the same issues. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Stars and Stripes Forever March, played by the Edison Military Band. Grangers gave way to Farmers Alliances, which gave way to a national political force called Populists. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the convention, I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened. It is important to note that later, after the turn of the century, these populists would become progressives. But it is most interesting that they all had their literal and figurative roots in the grasslands of America, and thus they were grassroots efforts. Aside from the doldrums of daily life in the grasslands and expensive railroad prices, the farmers had an even bigger problem, debt. Looking for solutions to this condition, farmers began to attack the nation's monetary system. Farmers wanted to create inflation. Inflation actually helps debtors. Let me explain. If a farmer owes $3,000 and can earn a dollar for every bushel of wheat sold at harvest, he needs to sell 3,000 bushels to pay off the debt. If inflation could push the price of a bushel of wheat up to, let's say, $3, he needs to only sell a 1,000 bushels. The economics are simple. And so to create this inflation, farmers suggested that the money supply be expanded to include dollars not backed by just gold. The first strategy of farmers attempted was to encourage Congress to print greenback dollars like the ones issued during the Civil War. Since the greenbacks were not backed by gold, more dollars could be printed, creating that very important inflationary effect. The Greenback Party each ran candidates for presidents in 1876, 1880, and 84 under this platform, but no candidate was able to muster enough support for the idea of paper money. Inflation could also be created by printing money that was backed by other ores, such as silver, which was abundant in the hills of Colorado. This idea was more popular because people were more confident if their money did have something of value, a hard currency, as opposed to a soft currency like paper. America did have the tradition of coining silver money until 1873, so on the ashes of the Greenback Labor Party grew the Populist Party, 
which strongly advocated for the use of silver. Populists called for a host of other reforms, too, included a graduated income tax where individuals earning a higher income would pay a higher percentage of taxes. They wanted political reforms as well in Washington. At this point in the United States, senators were still not elected directly by the people, but were instead chosen by state legislatures. The populists demanded a constitutional amendment allowing for the direct election of their state senator. They also demanded democratic reforms, such as the initiatives where citizens could directly introduce debate onto a topic in the legislature. These referendums would allow citizens, rather than their representatives, to vote on a bill. Recall was also another mechanism of the Populist Party. This would allow the people to end an elected official's term when it expired. They also called for a secret ballot and a one-term limit for the presidency. Everything seemed to be falling in place for the populists. James Weaver, one of the first presidential candidates, made an impressive showing in 1892. And now the populist ideas were being discussed across the nation. The panic of 1893, just a year later, was one of the worst financial crises to date in American history. As the soup lines grew larger, so did voters' anger at the present system. When Jacob Coxey of Ohio marched his 200 supporters into the nation's capital to demand reforms in the spring of 1894, many thought a people's revolution was brewing. The climate seemed ripe for change. All that the populace needed was a winning presidential candidate in 1896. Enter the boy orator. Ironically, the person who defended the populist platform that year came from the Democratic Party. William Jennings Bryan was an unlikely candidate. An attorney from Lincoln, Nebraska, Bryan's speaking skills were among the best in his generation. Known as the Great Commoner, Bryan quickly developed a reputation as a defender of the farmer. When populist ideas began to spread, Democratic voters of the South and the West gave enthusiastic endorsement. At the Chicago Democratic Convention in 1896, Bryan delivered a speech that made his career. Demanding the free coinage of silver, Bryan shouted, We will answer the demand for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Thousands of delegates roared their approval. And at the age of 36, the boy orator received the Democratic nomination. But faced with a difficult choice between surrendering their identity and hurting their own cause, the Populist Party also nominated Bryan as their candidate, and thus dividing the Democrats and the Populist 
setting the stage for a very clean Republican win. My fellow citizens, great statistics indicate that this country is in a state of unexampled prosperity. The Republican, William McKinley, the governor of Ohio. He had the support of the moneyed Eastern establishment, and behind the scenes, the wealthy Cleveland industrialist named Mark Hanna was determined to see McKinley elected. He, like many of his class, believed that the free coinage of silver would bring financial ruin to America. Using his vast wealth and power, Hanna directed a campaign based on the fear of Bryan's victory. McKinley campaigned from his home, leaving the politicking for the party hacks. Bryan, revolutionizing the campaign politics by launching a series of nationwide fast train stops, making 20 to 30 speeches per day, became known as the Whistle Stop Tour. When the results were finalized, though, America decided that McKinley should be president, beating Bryan by an electoral vote of 271 to 176. Many factors did lead to Bryan's defeat. In fact, political historians today go back to the election of 1896 to look at what went wrong. They will say that he was unable to win a single state in the populous Northeast, where most of the population was. Laborers feared the free silver idea as much as their labor bosses. And while inflation would help the debt-ridden, mortgage-paying farmers, it could hurt the wage-earning, rent-paying factory workers. In a sense, the election of 1896 came down to city versus country. By 1896, the city had won. The economy of 1896 was also on the upswing. Now, had the election occurred in the heart of the Panic of 1893, the results they might have been different. Farm prices were rising in 1896, albeit slowly. So the Populist Party was actually fighting against a growing and rather successful nation. The Populist Party fell apart after Bryan's loss, and although they continued to nominate candidates, their membership had reverted back to the two major political parties of the day, the Democrats and the Republicans. But their ideas did endure. And although free silver had died as a political issue, the graduated income tax, the direct election of senators, placing initiatives and referendums and recalls on secret ballots were all enacted. So the populists' efforts were not in vain. These issues, plus many more, are kept alive by the next standard bearer of reform, the progressives. And that concludes part two of our three-part series of Closing the Frontier on Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nisosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join me for this educational journey. Coming up in part three of our series of Closing the Frontier, we will head west 
to Sand Creek, Colorado. This small village of approximately 800 Cheyenne Indians live in the open grasslands of a very flat southeast Colorado. Black Kettle, the local chief, had approached a U.S. Army fort seeking protection of his people, and he was assured by the U.S. government that he would not be disturbed. The next day would reveal that promise was unable to be kept. Mm -hmm.